the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. We played this uh, audio yesterday, but uh, it's worth another listen. This is an um, African-American lady and businesswoman in the Bronx addressing the protesters and the rioters about uh, what happened to a shop that she co-owns. You said black lives matter. I work here part-time. Plus, I'm a part owner of this store. You said black lives matter. Why don't you choke me? I'm black. Look what you did to my store. Look. Look what you did to my school. Tell them, sister. That's right, because I got their back. These are my clothes right here. Good man. Look at the things you've done. Good man. Look. The Black Lives Matter. We've been here all night cleaning up. All night cleaning. And you got black people standing right here with them. Tell me. Black Lives Matter. You lied. You wanted to loot the store. You needed money. Get a job like I do. Stop stealing. This is the neighborhood. We're trying to build it up, and you're tearing it down. We're trying to build it up, and you're tearing it down. Who are the looting ruins? Excellent editorial in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Luis Temay is an uh, immigrant with an Ecuadorian restaurant in Minneapolis. Zola Diaz is a black owner of a clothing store in Atlanta. Sam Broke has a denim shop in Columbus, Ohio. There are only a few of the people whom intellectuals overlook whenever they rationalize rioting or say that property destruction isn't violence. And they go through Safiya Mune, a Somali immigrant in Minneapolis who opened a restaurant that is now wrecked. She said, my heart is broken, my mind is broken. I know I can't come, I can't come back from this. But this can be replaced, George's life can't. George's life was more important. Zola Diaz in Atlanta lost more than $100,000 in goods from his clothing store. I'm very emotional when I talk about my business because I put my soul and life in this business. Mr. Tomei, the uh, immigrant with the Ecuadorian restaurant in Minneapolis, 17 years of work is gone. King's Fashion in Philadelphia is a burned-out mess. I don't know what to do right now, said Helen Wu. I built it up, and it's gone. My life is gone. And the response to uh, those non-members of the clerisy, to borrow Joel Kotkinism, you know, the yeomanry that's discarded by the clerisy, the intellectuals, as the Wall Street Journal mentions. The response is to move from decriminalization of crime to redefinition of violence, and now to defunding and disbanding police departments. 
And as I said before, Mike Scott's newscast, that may very well start in Minneapolis and it may start moving today. And guess who's leading the charge? Jeremiah Ellison, son of Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, who happens to be a member of the Minneapolis City Council. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by William Jacobson. He's a clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law School. He's also the founder of LegalInsurrection.com, which is a great uh, blog for all things law-related, and president of the Legal Insurrection Foundation. Professor Jacobson, thanks for uh, joining us again. Appreciate it. Hi. Um, What do you think about that? Uh, You know, disband uh, uh, municipal police departments and come up with another way to, uh, I I guess, uh, enforce the rules of, of civil society. Well, I think the first thing you've got to remember, this is not new. This has been the agenda for many years. It's been the agenda at least since 2014 when the Black Lives Matter movement was launched by some pretty radical Marxists, frankly. Uh, And their goal all along has been to dismantle the public safety and the the police system. So this is not new. This is just uh, an opportunity they have seized on that issue. And if you understand it, what they are about is essentially replacing our system, our capitalist system, with a more socialist or leftist system. And this is, this is a key part of it, which is removing law and order, creating chaos. Now, everybody can and should condemn what happened to George Floyd, but you need to understand the political aspect of what's happening now is independent of what happened to George Floyd. This has been the plan for a long time. You're right. This has been going on for some time, too. I mean, we've remarked on this show about uh, the uh, Portland Police Department a couple of years back, essentially giving way to Antifa, the Rose City Antifa, which is one of the more organized iterations of it, to uh, direct traffic and otherwise, uh, you know, uh, rule the streets, if you will. Uh, So you've seen that you have members of Congress calling for defunding uh, ICE and Border Patrol uh, we shouldn't have a southern border. Uh, there shouldn't be any uh, strictures there. And and so this is seems to me just the as you were sort of describing the logical logical progression about where a lot of individuals want to go. And and again, this isn't just your one off anarchist or anarchist group. The, the, this is being legitimized by people who have governing power in big cities. Right. And because they have seized on the issue of race, um, it's an issue which they can weaponize very easily. Corporations are now donating millions of dollars to this movement. This movement, which seeks to tear down the corporations, are now getting funded by the corporations. It's a totally insane situation. But when part of the problem also is the media. It is absolutely astounding that a police misconduct in a completely liberal Democrat city run top to bottom by Democrats and liberals in a state run top to bottom by Democrats and liberals. Somehow that is being blamed on Donald Trump. It is absolutely astounding. And it shows you the power of the media to form a narrative. And the media is 100 percent behind the rioting and the looting. They really are. They um, so much for social distancing. That doesn't matter anymore. So, I mean, it's real, really a bad situation. Well, and Andrew Sullivan, who is not a conservative, tweeted this out about the media. 
The truth is a critical mass of mainstream journalists do not want to reflect a report on anything that they might disagree with. They see opposing views as, quote unquote, violence and the attempt at objectivity, a cover for white supremacy. They are a disgrace. That's Andrew Sullivan. Yeah, it's true. I mean, one thing I know he's commented on, I've commented on a lot because I teach on a campus. What has happened is the insane um, things that happen on campuses, the things that 10 years ago you would have thought are so extreme, there's no way they could ever spread to society, have now spread to society. That the sort of intolerance of opposing views, the disruption of speakers, the view that an opposing viewpoint is somehow violence, that is a concept which is really dangerous because if, if your viewpoint is the equivalent of violence, that justifies their violence against you. I mean, I've encountered that on campuses. I would, Vassar College I went to speak at, they tried to prevent me from speaking. And I'm hardly a controversial person. But anybody who's got any sort of notoriety who is not full-blown left-wing is going to get shouted down and disrupted on a campus. And that has now moved into our culture. So the campus culture has moved into society because these are the people who you know, graduated 10 years ago and now they're in significant positions at Google and at YouTube and uh, at Twitter, and they're the ones who's who are deciding who gets to speak or not. You know, um, you know, Andrew Breitbart once said, and I don't know if he's the only one, that you know, polis politics is downstream from culture. And what has happened is there has been a complete takeover of the major cultural institutions of, by Marxists and by leftists and now the politics is following because if you want to express a differing viewpoint, where are you going to go? You're going to go to Twitter. You're going to go to Facebook. And you're likely to get shut down or you're likely to get shadow banned or you're likely to be kicked off completely. So I think it's a really bad situation uh, just, or you lose your job. Uh, just real quick before we have to let you go. Cornell West said the American experiment is a failure. Basically, it's over. What do you think? Well, where are you going to go? I mean, give us a better example of what's happened. Uh, you know, th but that's been Cornell. This is a perfect example. This is what Cornell West has been saying for 30 years. This is what um, this is not new. This is not George Floyd. This is not police misconduct. These are people who hate our system. And I use that deliberately. They hate our system as it is, and they want to tear it down. Professor and they Jacob. think they yeah. have found the beautiful, the right way to do it. Professor William Jacobson, the founder of LegalInsurrection.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, wow. 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 Remember uh, job numbers lagging indicator. Unemployment rate falls in May. Falls in May from 14.7 to 13.3%. 2.5 million jobs gained in May after 20.5 million were lost in April. 
two and a half million jobs gained. I mean, okay, but a, a lot of states haven't really reopened, not significantly, uh, as in in May, and uh, we know we live in one. Uh, also, and but but I mean, the projections were nine million jobs lost. The projection ADP two days ago, two point seven million jobs lost, two and a half million jobs gained. Maybe a V-shaped recovery is still in our future. Uh, Scott Shalady, Fox Business regular. Scott the Cow Guy Shalady, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Even your your cynicism cannot yeah. confront that jobs number. I you know I've got a uh, I've got a column that comes out on Sunday in the Northwest Indiana Times. I have to rewrite it now. Yeah, it's got to be in in an hour and a half. I mean, this is this is a that's a ten million job swing from we lost. We thought we were going to lose seven point five million. We gained two point five. I mean, I've never in my thirty two years seen anything like this. This is a a blowout on on top of all blowouts numbers. And I mean, it's almost too good to be true. I don't know what to say. I mean, we had to reread these numbers a couple three times because they were so shockingly good to the upside manufacturing i mean we were expecting a 400,000 job loss we gained 225,000 i mean the, the private payrolls everything was a game that we thought was going to be a loser um and it's and we actually had an unemployment rate of 13.3% which was less than last month's 14.7% and a lot less than the expectation between say 19 and 22 so this is a blowout i mean this is an absolute blowout and scott to what do you attribute this i you know what it's when you have numbers that are this different than what the, as they say, the experts expe- expected. Um, I'm not quite sure. I mean, obviously, you, you, your first inclination was right, Amy. I mean, the economies are opening up, but New York's not really, and Chicago's not really, and LA's not really. I mean, those are big engines. Those those aren't really kind of online, and and we've got uh, we've got numbers here that are saying. Uh, things are looking better a lot faster. I still can't say that we're going to have a V-shaped recovery because we still lost, you know, just under 20 million yeah. jobs in total. Yeah, sure. So we I mean, still have. yeah, like, yeah. You know, we, 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 yeah, we quadrupled the unemployment rate in the last 60 days. That's not, you know, good news in in a vacuum. But in context, it seems to me that people were preparing to get back to how things were. Maybe even we're getting back to how things were before the states uh, formally started to phase in the reopening. And, uh, yeah, you know, and and so perhaps that that explains it in part. I mean, there's a lot of optimism about what is possible as soon as reopening occurs. Well, things that don't ever get talked about, and these are the four most important ones, and I think really people need to realize we have a a ready and willing uh, workforce, right? A very able, ready and willing, number one. We have historically low energy prices, right? And we've got historically low interest rates. And so, and we've got a Fed that's going to stand behind this economy and this market. So you put those four things together, that's a tinderbox to the upside. Now, they put those four things together because they were so worried about how bad the downside was going to be. But boy, these numbers are just telling me that, man, maybe our imaginations were our own worst enemy. Well... Yeah, you know, you, you have to be a, more of an unbridled optimist like myself. I hope this is a lesson to you. <laughs> I think the best, yeah, the best comment I got this morning uh, from some pretty people that, you know, they know what's going on. And uh, they say, uh, you know, they really love this country, but they just can't stand the people in charge. And this this is the culmination of billions of individual decisions that make us great every single day. So I think that says it all. I mean, we've got a bunch of Americans out there on a day-to-day basis that are doing the right thing, making the right decisions, in spite of 
the, uh, the the ball and chain governor mayor situation that a lot of these big uh, states are, are facing, and this is what you get. And we also saw over in Europe, uh, you know, some European countries come to the plate and stimulate their economies as well. So today's a tinderbox Friday. So I guess it makes me feel better. I mean, I don't want to have the world in, in, in a waffle, but at the same time, you're right, Dan. I mean, we still lost almost 20 million jobs. Well, there is going to be some damage, and it's not going to be able to get back to – I mean, we were at 29 and change when we were looking at the Dow when we were at the highs of the year. We're at 26.9 right now, so we're just under 3,000 3, points away. But, I mean, we still have a lot of work to do, but this is fantastic news in the, in the short term. No question. And, and uh, you know, maybe one of the, the incentives to get back to it, uh, date, uh, uh, date tax, uh, 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 you know, statistical firm, a uh, research firm, 58.6 percent of retail res- uh, rents were paid in May, which means 41 percent of retail rents weren't paid in May. And uh, if they want to go back to their businesses and, um, and not to mention the c- explosion for uh, commercial real estate interests, Boy, you can't have 40 percent of people not paying rent. You can't have 40 percent of vacancies. And so, um, you know, that th- this is all the more incentive to get get things going again. Uh, the, the numbers like that. Yeah. And you can't have governors mandating that you can only have 25 to 50 percent of your capacity, too, because that's just saying you can only have 25 to 50 percent of your revenues, but you still have to pay 100 percent of your overheads. And it looks like 41 percent of people didn't pay their overheads. But there's so many things that are still out there that are going to be a drag. You can't lose at least 25 percent of your restaurants. Open Table says that they're, you know, tw- at least 25 percent are gone. Right. Uh, well, there's other news about at least 31 percent of our small businesses are gone. Um, I mean, so there are some. Uh, definite some bruises, uh, but maybe this wasn't the car crash we thought it was, and maybe this was you know uh, something a lot less. But I, I still say that uh, you know I, I'm very very pleased about these these, these numbers, and even I am I'm, I'm skeptical. But at the same time, um, this is a much better outcome than if we got numbers that were equally as bad the other way. So I'll take it. And again, you just don't want to bet against America. And I love that one, one of my buddies wrote me is you know billions of little individual decisions, people doing the right thing every day, and no one's watching. And this is the culmination of that. Yeah. The, the concern, though, still exists. I mean, as we we're talking about, 13 percent unemployment is still massive unemployment. And, and the real concern is that you're going to have substantial unemployment for many months, if not years to come, because you're going to have a lot of businesses as they're retooling their businesses and allowing for distance working and so forth that are just going to need fewer people. And so it's not going to snap back for, for many people. And, and, and a lot of those people, because they're the, a lot of the, the great percentage of the unemployed, 40% of the unemployed making under $40,000 a year, a lot of those people are not going to have jobs to come back to immediately. Right. And, and also the way that we've learned to work differently. I mean, the, the, the stock uh, the uh, airline industry stock-wise has just gone through the roof. Everybody's getting, getting the feeling that people are going to start flying again. But, you know, there's going to be a difference. There's going to be a difference because I've been out here in Scottsdale since the middle of March, and I'm doing a ton of business over Zoom, Skype, and Google meetings or whatever that's called. I mean, a ton. And, and a lot of people are getting very, very comfortable with that, and I think that that will – uh, dent the industry. It's not going to stop it altogether. And remember, I, I you know I, I flew the first day after 9/11 to go to two funerals. I lost five guys in the World Trade Center, and I remember the feeling of no one's going to ever want to fly again. 
Well, 10 years later, we were at all-time record highs is flying, and I thought no one's ever going to want to build a skyscraper again, and you know, it wasn't that many years later that we were building skyscrapers taller than the World Trade Center. So we will heal, and we'll get back, and it will, and it will be okay. It's just that we, you know, the, big, the big question is how long does that take? And this, this number is telling us it's probably not going to take as long as we thought, but there still is definitely, definitely some damage. Fox Business Regular, Scott, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, have a good weekend. You too. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. From watching television and listening to the news, you get the impression that rioting and protesting, two different things, but both are happening on city streets throughout the country. Certainly, there is a large incidence of both sorts of events. An interesting piece by Barry Latzer, the Wall Street Journal, this week. He's a professor emeritus at New York's John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He uh, notes that in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, which uh, the period we're experiencing now is being compared to routinely, while there were significant riots and, and significant death and destruction, an analysis of 673 municipalities with populations over 25,000 people during that time period, found that 75% of them experienced no riots. Even within riot-torn cities, it was estimated that 85% or more of the black population took no part in them. Uh, Again, just more context for consideration when assessing the real scale of the destruction. Now, of course, you can have a motivated small group of people do amazing things and do catastrophic things. And right now, some are doing catastrophic things, but it still represents a small fraction of what's going on. And by extension, the real margins of discourse on the topic of race in America, police and their role in a civil society, and all of the other issues that are being discussed where discussion is possible. For more on this, please to be joined by Christos Makritis. He serves as an assistant research professor at Arizona State University, a digital fellow at the MIT Sloan Initiative on the Digital Economy, and a non-resident fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government Cybersecurity Initiative. Christos, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, and and so um, and and I thought Attorney General Barr's comments yesterday were properly measured and thoughtful in distinguishing between the groups at play here and the individuals at play here and what the various agendas or motivations are. And so um, let's talk about. Uh, there's not much discussion about peaceful rioters exercising their right to. Uh, petition their government. There's general agreement. Yep. Absolutely legitimate. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the rioters and some of the recasting of the violence that's being done uh, by some in academia with the help of some in media where uh, the damage to property is not actual violence. The uh, stealing is not actual stealing. It's symbolic taking, as Nicole Hannah-Jones termed it. That is not advancing the cause of the peaceful protesters, that's for certain. No, and I especially, it breaks my heart when I see other academics or people in positions that really should know better making remarks that can really light a fire and lead people astray. And so I think we all need to be really measured with what we say, especially during times of crisis when people are looking at people with influence, people in different positions to um, to kind of calm and defuse the situation. So to say that attacks against property are not a form of violence, 
it begs a deeper question of what is violence and if people build their livelihoods around property and there is such a thing as a property right then an attack against a property is inherently an attack against a person because that person generates their income stream their livelihood their relationships from that entire uh, body. It's sad to see a lot of that rhetoric happening, and it's certainly not productive. You know, this seems to me like a a 2.0 interpretation of the Kerner Report that dates back to the late 60s, another work product of an Illinois governor. Where does the carnage from Illinois governors begin and end? Which essentially declared the Kerner Report that white racism was responsible for what was happening in urban centers with respect to unrest. Uh, Now, certainly... um, It was a different circumstance 50 years ago than it is today, but it seems like the uh, conclusions of the Kerner Report have been reinterpreted to be reapplied today in the same way, even though America is a very different place than it was in the late 60s. There is always that sort of revisionism that it it props up so many times in academia where people just start trying to reinterpret things of the past and reading a little bit too much into it. There is an extremely vital role of looking back on history. And one of the papers that I came across in writing the op-ed was a wonderful piece by two economic historians, William Collins and Robert Margot. And so when we look back to history, we shouldn't be trying to revise and tell like a different story. We just should be looking at what does the data say and then what can we learn from it? And so if there's anything that we can really learn from uh, the, the experiences is that there were examples of peaceful protests. There were examples of violent protests. And the ones that were more effective in politically were the ones that were peaceful. Moreover, the ones that were uh, more damaging to the actual livelihoods of the people living in those places, not only were they more damaging to people overall, but they were more damaging to the very people that supposedly it was trying to help. And so just as we look today and trying to learn from history, we have to be really careful. And people that are overlooking this situation and they're in the media or they're in a university and somebody comes to them and asks, like, what do you think? Uh, you just need to be really, really measured and careful. And if you're not uh, not 100% sure, it's maybe better to err on the side of caution and just uh, try to be uh, as positive, diplomatic, and optimistic as possible. All right, let's hold it right there. When we come back with Christos Macritus, I want to talk about the surprising May unemployment numbers in the context of perhaps a hopeful surprise as to how quickly urban centers beset by both COVID-19 lockdowns and now civil unrest could possibly recover. More with Christos Macritus when we return. Come on, Don't say this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Christos Macritus, and I uh, want to pick up with the discussion of the uh, May unemployment numbers reported this morning. I mean, all things considered, in context, when you when you're projecting to have 20 percent unemployment, and you actually see an employment employment go up by 50 unemployment go up by 50 percent <laughs> from 14 to 20, and it recedes back to 13.3. Right. And you, there's 2.5 million jobs created in May, as opposed to the loss of seven and a half to nine million. That's you know that's good news just in terms of the trajectory of possible recovery right. from the pandemic. But um, the, the, the news is uneven because we also understand this week that more than half of black adults are unemployed uh, since the beginning of the pandemic and the lockdown policies. So now you have the combination of the response to the pandemic that has disproportionately impacted lower income Americans. And that means disproportionately lower in, uh, lower income blacks and, and Latinos. 
and uh, and you're adding in the destruction that's happening in urban centers where uh, there's a higher concentration of blacks and Latinos relative to their overall percentage of the American population. And so you're really retarding the possibility of economic vitality and self-sustainability through the combination of these, you know, arguably self-inflicted policies or policy choices or behavioral choices. And uh, it just seems to me that it's sort of an extension of what the, the shop owner in the Bronx or the, uh, the, the, the woman in Philadelphia is saying when they're screaming at the rioter saying you're, you're destroying the very place in which you live. We're trying to build up the community and you're tearing it down. This doesn't make any sense. Right. No, it's so true. So I, there's three things that come to mind, but um, just to uh, reiterate one of the points that you, you made and you started on is that there's it's really good news that things um, are improving and at least a lot more relative to what people were um, kind of predicting in all these doomsday predictions. And what, what, boy, it's just so, it's sad to see in academia when people make a lot of predictions and they never take responsibility for them. Yeah. So what happens when somebody says something and you're just completely wrong? And does that person come out and issue an apology? And sometimes if it's really egregious, like in the case of that Lancelot um, article that got published on hydroxychlorine, um, that they, they retracted it. But the damage is already done uh, when that retraction comes out. And you don't get you don't see people on CNN or MSNBC uh, then going back and uh, revisiting their comments and doing like a week long apology uh, about uh, how they misled the public. So anyways, um, we we could probably talk a whole segment just on um, that. But three three specific points that I think um, are are, uh, important to bear in mind. One is um, a a recent um, piece that uh, two friends, Arthur Brooks and Tyler Vanderweel, uh, wrote about it's uh, just like a two-page kind of policy uh, thought that came out in a journal, and they were arguing that media should start committing to a three-to-one rule where uh, we know that you, not not you, you, uh, but at media, uh, you love negative stories, and uh, that that there is this appeal to talk about the negative things that are going on. Wouldn't it be great if we could commit to a three-to-one rule where every three stories that comes out that's negative, there's one positive story. So I kind of think of it as like uh, President Trump's issue to OMB about every new regulation that, that comes out. There needs You need to like look back and see what, what other regulation um, is on the books that maybe we, we should go back and revisit. Um, a second thing uh, with regard and more directly with regard to the incidents and who's actually being affected by this and, and just the African-American community might see uh, a, a greater setback as a result from some of the, the more violent uh, uh, forms of rioting. Um, I was looking at the data for Chicago and other urban centers um, this morning. Uh, I have a really um, I'm blessed to have a great partnership with a company called Homebase, which uh, services a lot of small businesses uh, with the software. So if you're a small business like my parents are in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, you might use this system and log what, about your hourly workers. So they come in and put in their hours, all that sort of stuff. And so I was just looking at the data from last week. So on May 28th, um, uh, what you see is that there was like about a 46% decline in hours worked relative to the beginning of March. So pre-pandemic, uh, on May 28th, 
there was about this 46% decline. Uh, not surprising because everybody's been hit really hard. But then when you look at after the, the protests, and again, we're seeing this roll out in real time, but as of June 3rd, uh, it went down to 53%. So again, we, this is a really small sample, but when you're looking at early last week before these violent riots really uh, broke out, uh, about 46% decline in hours worked. Now it's about 53%. The reason why I mentioned this number uh, is twofold. One is because small businesses are really being affected and they don't always have like the large access to publicly public markets to be able to go out and borrow. Uh, so they're, they're disproportionately affected. And then two, as you mentioned, African-Americans are being uh, harder hit because when you look at Census Bureau data, you find that African-Americans are more likely to reside in uh, retail employment jobs than, than whites are. And so when you're just going back to the numbers and you're looking at who is really being affected by this, you see in these urban centers like Chicago or Minneapolis or Atlanta, uh, and you drill down to the specific data of the small businesses, uh, it's, 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 yeah, I mean, we, it, maybe a month from now we'll have, we'll have better numbers, we'll suddenly have more data. But right now, as the data is coming in real time, and again, this is I'm just looking up to June 3rd from uh, Homebase's recent data, and it just it looks like it kind of deteriorated even more in those areas. Now, overall, this coming back to the positive note is that overall, um, the country is doing a lot better and a lot of the reopenings are going fairly well. Uh, and I've got some research underway that's going to be tracking out these reopenings, especially on the tourism and hospitality sectors. But, um, yeah, I, I kind of ranted a lot long enough, but I'll just just to leave off is that, yes, it's having a negative effect. But uh, fortunately, there are a lot of places that. Um, are, are continuing to recover and the protests that, uh, because not every protest is as violent, those areas that are experiencing a little bit more peaceful protests are, are doing better. Yeah, hopefully uh, we'll have a similarly surprising snapback from the uh, civil unrest as well. He is Christos Makridis, Assistant Research Professor at Arizona State University, Digital Fellow at MIT's Sloan Initiative on the Digital Economy, a non-resident fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government Cybersecurity Initiative. Christos Mark uh, Macritus, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Appreciate the time. Take care. Bye. Dan Prof show and at the George Floyd Memorial Service yesterday, the uh, Boo Birds were out for Werner Wilhelm, the mayor of New York City. With respect, the mayor of New York City, Mayor Bill De Blasio, Hi. and First Lady Shakray McCray. Again, even again, the First Lady's getting again, it. We say respect. Yeah, well, if you have to say it again, I guess that means it's not present. Sort of remarkable uh, that a Sandinistan like de Blasio would be so poorly received. Uh, I know he's not in New York City, 
uh, per se, but uh, this is somebody who's alienated both uh, the left and the right and everybody in between. It's uh, sort of remarkable how he survives. Uh, so that was part of the service. Uh, the other part, of course, was the uh, demagoguery of race hustlers like Al Sharpton, I'm sorry to say. What happened to Floyd happens every day in this country, in education, in health services, and in every area of American life. It's time for us to stand up in George's name and say, get your knee off our necks. Mm. Um, I'd like to bring you uh, the uh, eulogies from the uh, David Dorn and David Patrick Underwood Memorial Services, but uh, those were not nationally televised, didn't attract uh, people of national profile or national infamy is probably a better description when you're talking about Sharpton and Jackson. And this is not to say anything about George Floyd or George Floyd's family or their decision to acquiesce to the presence of uh, those other individuals I named. But it is noteworthy, isn't it? Uh, the um, lionization of George Floyd. Sorry that he was killed by that police officer with the ostensible aiding and abetting by the other Minneapolis police officers. But being a victim doesn't make you a hero. And uh, the reviews of David Dorn, to the extent that anybody remembers his name for just a few days longer, the 77-year-old retired St. Louis police captain gunned down in St. Louis, filmed on Facebook Live, pleading for his life while he was bleeding out after being shot. David Patrick Underwood, another Af- African-American gentleman, of course, David Dorn, another African-American gentleman, federal security officer in Oakland who was assassinated. Do, do those Black Lives Matter, I guess? David Dorn's son and daughter-in-law spoke out. David Dorn mattered to them. They're black lives, too. They're black human beings as well. It was senseless over TVs, over uh, stuff that's replaceable. And uh, they're forgetting the real message for the protests and the positiveness that's supposed to come out of it. And we get this negative light that's shown on a situation that really needed light to be brought to it. I just hope that the person that did this, that they come forth or whatever, because this is just so senseless. And I'm just, I'm tired of it. I'm just, I'm tired. Hope in the face of senselessness. Good commentary. This is Dan Prof. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. You're learning a lot about America in these tumultuous times, both with the pandemic as well as the civil unrest, and uh, from Joe Biden, who uh, gives us a, a basic approximation about uh, how many bad people there are in this country. So when a president stands up and divides people all the time, you're going to get the worst of us to come out, the worst in us all to come out. So president talks, constantly talks about equality without, without lecturing, talks about 
and it has administrations that looks like the country and the rest, it changes attitudes. And it's about the attitude of the country. Do we want our kids, do we, do we really think this is as good as we can be as a nation? I don't think the vast majority of people think that. There are probably anywhere from 10 to 15 percent of the people out there that are just not very good people. But that's not who we are. The vast majority of the people are decent. We have to appeal to that and we have to unite people, bring them together, bring them together. Uh, Mr. Vice President, Mr. Vice President, I have a follow up. The 33 to 50 million people in this country who are not good people, could you identify them by groupings at minimum, if not by names? It's just something approximating that. Yeah, 10 to 50 percent of the nation, bad people, quantifying it. What's the basis for that? I mean, as a man of science, I assume that he studied this issue and had a team of uh, credentialed researchers. Yeah, what, so what constitutes a bad person? What was the methodology? Was it published in The Lancet? Did it have to be retracted by the New England Journal of Medicine? I want to know all the answers. In addition to that pronouncement from Joe Biden this week, one of my other faves was from Fredo Cuomo uh, as cooler heads are prevailing and calling for others to follow suit, be a cooler head, do not commit acts of violence. Fredo Cuomo on CNN went the other direction. Now, too many see the protest as the problem. No, the problem is what forced your fellow citizens to take to the streets. Persistent and poisonous inequities and injustice. And please, show me where it says that protests are supposed to be polite and peaceful. Show me where it says that protesters are supposed to be peaceful. I mean, it's just the, the depths of the ignorance here. You know, you can have more than one problem occurring at the same time. I, I don't know if that was given any consideration. You can have the issue of the George Floyd case. Uh, you can have all sorts of other problems in a diverse country of 330 million people and also recognize that people rioting is one of those problems. You can redefine violence uh, all you want. You're not going to get majority support for the position that destroying somebody's business is okay when they've done nothing wrong. For more on fear and uh, its use as a political weapon, please be joined again by Frank Ferruti. He is a professor emeritus of sociology at the University of Kent across the pond in the U.K. and author of How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, as well as the forthcoming Why Borders Matter, why Humanity Must Relearn the Art of Drawing Borders. Professor, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Glad to So uh, it turns out that um, one of the oxymorons that is uh, bandied about among the intelligentsia is the phrase safe spaces. Uh, those uh, spaces aren't very safe at all once you start to scratch below the surface a little bit. For example, when safe spaces are defined, as uh, you write, as somewhere where no other humans are, as one University of Michigan epidemiologist described or defined a safe space. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's very interesting because in a, a lot of universities and colleges in America, the reason why you have a safe space is basically to build a quarantine around yourself against being criticized. So if I question you, if I raise problems with you about your behavior or your ideas, that's not seen as so offensive that you must be insulated and protected from it. And I think what you've got is this very unhelpful idea of safe space, which by definition implies that anything outside of that is inherently unsafe. And I think that kind of verbal gymnastic that's been brought in creates a situation where a lot of young people become extremely fragile and unable to handle the challenges of everyday life and continually almost... Uh, 
having this impulse of hiding behind something rather than facing up to the fact that the world we live in is not always very pleasant. One of the other contradictions, in addition to the, the contradictions around the concept of safe space, is around the concept of non-judgmentalism. I'm non-judgmental. All positions are morally equivalent, except the ones I disagree with, and those positions are called violence. Yeah, I think this is a very big problem. I mean, just on the verbal gymnastics around violence, I think it's very interesting that the same people in uh, universities who call certain forms of speech violence, they say that if I criticize you, that's a form of verbal violence. The same people that condemn the use of strong words are also the same people that insist that the violence that exists on the streets of the United States is actually peaceful protest. So there's a kind of, that's not really violence. So you've got this kind of real double standard. You know, my criticism of you is violent speech, but if somebody actually uh, loots a shop or burns a building down, that's not seen as being violent. That's given a different kind of a name. And I think when we have this kind of Orwellian language that is being used, then it is not surprising that we end up with kind of major political problems that we have, where we simply cannot talk to each other because all sides seem to speak a very different language. You um, uh, write in your piece, too, about um, fear and uh, the quest for personal safety. And uh, you make an important point that I'd like you to develop as, um, you know, as an academic in, in the field of sociology, the idea that um, it's not just um, external threats. The fear or the quest for personal safety is not just with respect to external threats. It's also with respect to internal turmoil. And I think that starts to get to some of what you talk about in your book, How Fear Works. So could you elaborate on that? I think one of the things we're seeing is that uh, we live in a world where we've been encouraged to look inwards all the time, where we tend to define the problems of everyday life as almost like psychological or mental health problems, where we tend to uh, have such a, an obsessive attitude towards our existence that we become very insecure as people. We kind of continually had this inner tension within us, a feeling of insecurity. We don't know why, but we just feel very insecure. And I think as a result of that, we tend to have a, adopt practices that are extremely risk-averse, that continually uh, attempt to prevent us from coming into contact with anything that's a little bit uncertain. And because of that, our fears acquire this very powerful sort of force that can easily detach itself from any particular threat but can have this free-floating character that one day, you know, we're worried about our weight, next day we're worried about the food that we eat, the day after we're worried about the fact that uh, there are strangers in our area that might harm our children. And every single day they, 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 there's an amplification of uh, different kinds of fears, which we are not really based on anything specific, but are, are the external expressions of our internal psychological upheavals which is what our culture at the moment tends to encourage and foster. A 2018 study published in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery analyzed more than 114,000 criminal arrests made across three mid-sized police departments in America, finding that more than 99% of arrests were carried out without the use of physical force. In 98% of the cases in which officers did use physical force, which represented, again, 1% of the overall cases, 98% of those cases, suspects sustained no or mild injury. Um, why doesn't uh, research or data 
when you uh, are conversing about uh, the issue of police brutality, police misconduct, when you are conversing about the lethality of a virus like COVID-19, why can it not penetrate the consciousness of many? I think uh, it's a very good question. Uh, I often wonder why it is that we have this inflated idea of dangers and threats that uh, are often unrelated to reality. And, you know, these days, all you really need is just one person dying of COVID in, a, in kind of very graphic terms to for us to believe that our way of life is going to become destroyed. And all we need to see is one instance of a heavy-handed policeman you know, sort of pushing people around to imagine that uh, the police, this is the normal way that the police tend to kind of behave. And I think that in this interconnected world that we live in, uh, where we're always expected and, and encouraged to fear the worst, and this kind of worst-case thinking is very powerful. Every time I watch something on Netflix, it kind of comes across with full force. It does lead to a situation where the reality, as you described, it becomes distorted, and we just simply don't see what's in front of our eyes. He is Frank Ferruti, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of Kent in England, author of How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, which is excellent. I've read that. And the forthcoming Why Borders Matter, Why Humanity Must Relearn the Art of Drawing Borders, and I look forward to reading that. Professor Ferruti, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thank Take you. Care. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, it's been uh, remarkable between the pandemic and the civil unrest to uh, watch Americans rediscover the Constitution including some of the uh, least discussed portions of it. I'm hearing this week, I'm not laughing about it, but it's somewhat entertaining. Hearing this week uh, people making uh, Third Amendment arguments against the courting of troops in order to uh, rebuff the notion that was advanced by Senator Tom Cotton and by President Trump that if governors and mayors couldn't control their streets that he would scramble the military to do that for them. But I I fret that I don't think that the uh, passages of the Constitution that are convenient in the moment are will be taken to heart generally outside particular political interests, much less will they help to develop an understanding of the document holistically. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Robert Riley, the director of the Westminster Institute, served as a special assistant to the president and director of The Voice of America also Senior Advisor for Information Strategy to the Secretary of Defense. And uh, his new book, America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding. Robert Riley, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, Your um, reaction to what I had to say just about sort of some of the constitutional arguments, the Fifth Amendment takings during the lockdown, and now we have arguments about quartering of troops during the response to civil unrest. Are you... uh, more optimistic than I am that there's going to be a renewed love affair with the United States Constitution? There would have to be a reacquaintance with it before yes. that happens. Yes. And with the entire founding era and with the principles 
of the American founding as articulated in the Declaration of Independence. It's a bit of a challenge, right? The same people that are saying the nation was founded by a bunch of uh, racist uh, individuals and the 1619 Project saying the entire Revolutionary War was about preserving slavery. And at the same time, they're invoking passages from the document to defend their position. (laughs) Yes, well, I think their position is distinguished by how much you would have to not know in order to hold it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's, it's to say that it's the 1619 movement that the country was founded on slavery. Uh, it has to be ignorant, first of all, with the fact that slavery was already here and practiced by the Indians along with it. In fact, it was practiced universally. And the distinctive thing about this country is that uh, it began with a principle saying that all people are created equal that led to the elimination of slavery here. And one of the first things done after the founding were six of the colonies eliminating slavery or putting it on a a short course for elimination. And then the Northwest Ordinance uh, passed around the same time as the Constitution, banning slavery from the Northwest Territory forever. So it's a little incongruous with a group that established the country to protect slavery. I mean, it's so it's so stupid, it's hard to take seriously. It's uh, so stupid, only the Pulitzer Committee could have passed muster with. But uh, so the more interesting argument is actually within conservative circles, and, and you take that up in your book. The uh, suggestion by Patrick Deneen, a Notre Dame scholar, among others, that uh, what you have in America now, all the the, the the fretting over American culture is a culmination of the ideals advanced by the founders, not a rejection of it. In point of fact, he argues effectively, does Deneen, that you can't be a good man and a good citizen in America under our founding documents. And I understand that you reject that. And how would, how do you respond to that contention? Well, I think he, like so many others, is trying to find an explanation, a cause for how we have ended up in the morally degraded condition that we are with the uh, wholesale pornography, abortion, uh, dissolution of the family, et cetera, et cetera. And he says it's because the founding was infected by the principles of enlightenment, radical individualism. So that it was only a matter of time before uh, this kind of uh, time-release poison pill uh, affected us, and we're its victims. So the original sin was the American founding, and it was uh, supposedly principles of, of radical individualism. So when I, I have challenged him to show me exactly where those principles are, uh, it turns out that the, in the documents or the writings of the founders themselves, there's there's no evidence for it. In fact, there's quite the opposite, that they say this kind of government, this republic, depends particularly upon the virtue of the citizenry. And without that virtue, we don't get to keep the republic. So there was... and, and George Washington, in his first inaugural address, spoke of the indissoluble union between virtue and happiness. They were unanimous in uh, seeing virtue as the indispensable element of a successful republic. So it's not 
this idea that liberty is some kind of license is it just it isn't there. In, in fact, in, so, fa- in fact, the founders writings suggest a, a understanding of man's dark nature, don't they? That's exactly the point. They didn't think man was perfectible. The The American founding wasn't to create uh, a regime for the perfectibility of man, but it was one that uh, to give him freedom to pursue his spiritual destiny and to see to his material, the material conditions of life that make that possible. And it's the... Uh, preamble of the Declaration of Independence makes very clear uh, that we're endowed uh, by our Creator with these certain inalienable rights, that they come from God, and we're to live under the laws of nature and the laws of God, and that that's not a license for immorality. And the other thing they believe so clearly is that these were <clears throat> immutable principles transcendent principles because they came from God. And if I wanted to find someone, or not some person, because this has been going on for far too long, but a a kind of thinking that has undermined uh, the founding, I'll just offer you this, this sentence from President Barack Obama in his book, The Audacity of Hope. He said, quote, implicit in the Constitution's structure, in the very idea of ordered liberty was a rejection of absolute truth. The infallibility of any idea or ideology or theology or ism and any tyrannical consistency that might lock future generations into a single unalterable course, unquote. So the rejection of absolute truth, there you go. The truth doesn't set you free, it enslaves you. So he, he doesn't accept the founding as have, having been founded on transcendent, immutable principles. Mm. Right. And, and, that, and, the, and that's, this you is, lose it. Right, and this is where we are in the, uh, the sort of wasteland of Orwellian redefinition, freedom is slavery, violence is peace, and so forth. Robert Riley, director of the Westminster Institute, uh, special, served as special assistant to the president, as director of Voice of America, and also senior advisor for information strategy, to the Secretary of Defense, his book, America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding. Robert Riley, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, we're trying to do our best to highlight um, voices of reason, uh, temperance, which is uh, one of the cardinal virtues, by the way, in these times uh, from uh, all walks of life. You've heard us uh, on the show play some of the comments of uh, business owners in the Bronx and Philadelphia from the world of sports. After that whole Drew Brees imbroglio, where ultimately I think much to he'll it will ultimately be to his chagrin and regret he bent the knee Drew Brees in the face of all these this criticism for saying I don't think people should disrespect the flag referencing family members who served our country in the military that is now an offensive statement to many 
uh, Tony Dungy, Hall of Famer, had this to say about uh, Drew Brees' comments and the firestorm it engendered. We have to have Drew Brees saying what he said. I don't, I don't downgrade Drew for that, okay? That's what he said. He may not totally understand. It may have been uh, not exactly the way he wanted to express it, but he can't be afraid to say that. And we can't be afraid to say, okay, Drew, I don't agree with you, but let's talk about this and let's, let's, let's sit down and talk about it. We can't just say anytime something happens that we don't agree with, hey, I'm done with that and I'm done with this person. And that doesn't make sense. Uh, we, we have to be better than that. This battle is not going to be won by demonstrating and throwing bricks through windows. Uh, it's not going to be won by the, the government saying, hey, we're going to bring out these weapons and dominate the streets again. That is not going to fix anything. And I don't agree with everything Tony Dungy is insinuating there, but um, it's fine. It's, it's totally legitimate opinion. It's the basis for a totally rational discussion. Tony Dungy at least wants to have rational discussions that include Drew Brees and his perspective. And very uh, few others in uh, at least that have platforms seem to want to, including the New York Times, as Tony Dungy referenced, uh, the uh, prospect of dispatching the military to quell the violence in urban centers. New York Times publishes an op-ed from a sitting United States senator. His name is Tom Cotton, who was perhaps the first and most vociferous to call out for the use of the 101st Airborne, which, by the way, I disagree with. But it's not an illegitimate conversation. And now because they engendered so much backlash from their newsroom, the New York Times op-ed team, we've examined the piece and the process leading up to its publication. This review made clear that a rushed editorial process led to the publication of an, of an op-ed that did not meet our standards. As a result, we're planning to examine both short-term and long-term changes to include expanding our fact-checking operation and reducing the number of op-eds we publish. The compulsory unification of opinion uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, she of the 1619 Project, I told you you're going to be hearing a lot more from her, particularly during these times, it's being sponsored, 1619 Project, sponsored by the New York Times. I'll probably get in trouble for this. No, you won't. But to say, uh, to not say something would be immoral. As a black woman, as a journalist, as an American, I'm deeply ashamed that we ran this. She's talking about the Tom Cotton editorial. Why can't you just oppose the position? Why does it have to be expunged from the debate? That's a real difference. For more on the media's performance during these perilous times, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, you know, special report, 5 p.m. Chicago time, number one best-selling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. Brett, thanks for joining us. Um, so y- your perspective on um, the D.C. press corps' performance over the last week or so? Well, mixed at best. I do think that there's a uh, pressure uh, and I, I thought most indicative of that uh, New York Times scuffle uh, editorially was uh, the tweet and thread of tweets from Barry Weiss yeah. um, on the opinion page uh, saying that, you know, the old school liberal journalists of the New York Times uh, believed free speech was that and um, that they were fighting for that. But the new, in her words, progressive uh, side of uh, New York Times writers and opinion makers uh, essentially said that they were hurt by and affected by uh, the opinions of Senator Cotton. And, um, you know, that's it's just an interesting turn 
and uh, for all the talk about uh, you know fighting for free speech and the ability to say what you want and and protest and demonstrate, in reality, it's not all sides. It's it's just the side that doesn't hurt you, uh, and it's it's just in her words to read that from the inside was I think eye opening for. For a lot of people. All right, Brett Bear, hold it right there. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, some present and former cabinet secretaries breaking ranks, but ask the question as whether or not congressional Republicans are. More with Fox News's Brett Bear when we return. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Fox News special report host Brett Baer, and before the break, we're talking about the protests and um, how much of this should not really be that much of a surprise, but. Uh, there is some useful juxtapositions to be had, including Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, on the one hand, saying that violence isn't violence, you know, taking a, a, a destroying property is not violence, that uh, stealing is a symbolic taking. That's not really violence either. But an opposing viewpoint, that's violence. Yeah, and that's. I think a lot of people would look at look at that as dangerous if we start being unable as a as a country to have calm debates. They don't even have to be calm. They could just be debates that are don't escalate to violence because someone, you know, feels hurt by something. On the flip side, I mean this is all with the caveat that as white people we cannot articulate the fear and the anger and the uh, angst uh, in black communities in the wake of what they saw with George Floyd, what everybody saw with George Floyd, and what has been happening over the years. So we're not the best vessels to be making the argument, but you can open your eyes and say, this is happening, and it's probably something that we as a country have to deal with. Yeah, no, I'll stipulate to that, but... um... It is worth noting, and, and I know uh, you and Fox News have noted it, you know, when you have um, accomplished intellects who also date back to the civil rights movement, like Bob Woodson, who's been on this program, has been on your, you know, your programs on Fox as well as yours, um, and Shelby Steele and others who have the credentials, who have lived the life, yeah. and they're saying that um, they don't know what system, s- systemic racism is supposed to mean. And these charges of racism are a cover for 50 years of rot in urban centers, of failed left-wing policies in urban centers. You know, that uh, those uh, opinions, uh, they do have the standing and and they should be given amplification beyond just Fox News Channel. Totally. Those points of view have to be heard in the mix as well. That's I mean, that's my point is that um, I think we're better for talking things through than we are for not or squelching or or shutting down uh, debate. With respect to COVID-19, remember that? Remember COVID-19? Um, and uh, 
just again the reaction here uh, this is from an epidemiologist who has some renown for from several commentators why aren't you yelling about these protesters to dr tara smith an epidemiologist i'm worried about them yes but if you see no difference between people protesting for their ability to get a haircut during a pandemic versus fighting against being murdered by police i can't help you um, i don't know if that's a medical or professional opinion but the issue is not um uh the what's more important a haircut or murder we know uh murder is more important that's not the issue the issue is social distancing is only relevant based to to stop the spread of the virus based on the reason for your lack of social distancing it's pretty amazing the the turn that we've taken uh and you know i've read a lot of things on social media where said you know it took race riots and this reaction to break the fever of the lockdown uh and you know there's so many people didn't know what to trust but now you know you have all of the reaction to the the folks in the ozarks on and being out and about so far we hear there's not one case of COVID in in reaction to that there's obviously not a huge reaction to these protesters you know arm in arm a lot of them wearing masks but they're jammed in places all around the world and uh yeah and and so we'll see we'll see what happens but it seems like this has changed the dynamic entirely and and maybe that's you know what needed to show people that we there are other ways to deal with it uh the congressional uh republican caucus is uh hearing some consternation from really the usual suspects, Romney, Murkowski, about the president's uh, response to the civil unrest. Is it uh, is it just the usual suspects or are there uh, Republicans who are concerned slash unhappy with how the president has handled the civil unrest to this point? I think this is different. I, I'm not ready to say the dam is breaking, but I'm, uh, this is different than before. The Mattis uh, letter really um, was scathing. I mean, really was biting and uh, changed some people's dynamics. If you've seen, there's other military, former military people who've come out with uh, letters, General Allen, Admiral right. Mullen, um, there's a whole list. And then most people are, are falling to the usual suspects in that they endorsed Hillary Clinton or um, lean towards Joe Biden, but others like Jim Mattis carried, it seemed like a, a different weight. So um, to, to answer your question, it's not public yet, but uh, if if things don't change, I think um, the independents may get affected uh, by the president. He is Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, host of Special Report, 5 p.m. weekday, Chicago time, number one best-selling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. And by the way, Brett, just as a quick aside, because I want you to be impressed by me, uh, 73 at, uh, at, uh, on Mammoth at Sand Valley on Monday. Wow. Even par. Yeah. Yeah. Holy and that, cow. and that was, and that was choking down the end where I bogeyed three of the last four. Yeah. You were leaking oil coming in. I was, I was just trying to get to the clubhouse. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Brad, thanks right, so much. You might have to give me shots. Yeah. Well, you know, look forward to that match. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll play for our respective salaries or something. Yeah. Uh, Brad, <laughs> Brad thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. We'll see All right. Always good to talk golf with Brett Baer. And uh, when I'm not on the golf course, I consume a lot of content, a bit of a cinephile. And uh, one of the things that I recommend to you is Patterns of Evidence, the Red Sea Miracle. Uh, the the uh, 
this is the work product of documentary filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who I've been telling you about for the past few weeks. He's put together a series, the Patterns of Evidence series. Next one up, the Red Sea Miracle. This is, uh, an, again, consistent with the approach that Mahoney took with making these films, uh, doing a faith-affirming journey in search of evidence as to whether or not the stories as told in the Bible were really true. This uh, latest uh, installment in the series, The Red Sea Miracle, tackles the question of one of the Bible's most epic miracles, the parting of the Red Sea. The results of Mahoney's investigation are monumental. And right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Red Sea Miracle, at home, along with the other movies in the series. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Going back to some of the remarks Attorney General Barr offered yesterday on uh, the protesters and the rioters and the professional agitators, thought he gave a very uh, measured distillation of the various groups involved in various activities from lawful to acts of domestic terrorism on America's streets, the attorney general. While many have peacefully expressed their anger and grief, others have hijacked protests to engage in lawlessness, violent rioting, arson, looting of businesses and public property, assaults on law enforcement officers and innocent people, and even the murder of a federal agent. Such senseless acts of anarchy are not exercises of First Amendment rights. They are crimes designed to terrify fellow citizens and intimidate communities. As I told the governors on Monday, we understand the distinction between three different sets of actors here. The large preponderance of those who are protesting are peaceful demonstrators who are exercising their First Amendment rights. At some demonstrations, however, there are groups that exploit the opportunity to engage in such crimes as looting. And finally, at some demonstrations, there are extremist agitators who are hijacking the protests to pursue their own separate and violent agenda. We have evidence that Antifa and other similar extremist groups, as well as actors of a variety of different political uh, persuasions, have been involved in instigating and participating in the violent activity. Project Veritas, James O'Keefe and company, got more evidence of that. A uh, former member of Rose City Antifa in Portland, you know, Antifa, the fascist, anti-fascist, uh, they've got uh, James O'Keefe had somebody inside to listen to what they said at their private closed door meetings, for example, on violence. This is and by the way, this individual is named so you can fact check him. Nicholas Safuni is his name. And here's what he said on camera. Don't be that f-ing guy with the God spiked brass knuckles getting photos taken of you. Police are going to be like, perfect. We can prosecute these f-ing. Not that we're not violent, but we just don't want to be caught being violent. So don't get caught. You can use the brass knuckles, just don't get caught with them. And uh, on uh, how you deal with your enemies. How violent is Antifa or RCA in particular? Practice things like an eye gouge. It takes very little 
uh, pressure to injure someone's eyes. They do not hesitate to either push back or incite some kind of violence. So there's former Antifa confirming to be true what Attorney General Barr was saying and that he has evidence of. And this is where, as we talked about at the outset of the week, the Department of Justice, as well as state and local law enforcement, needs to treat these organizations like any other terrorist organization or criminal organization and work from the street level, those providing rocks and frozen bottles of water and bottles of human waste to throw at police. Work your way up from the street level thug to those that are calling the shots and dismantle these terrorist organizations like Antifa. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. President Trump signing uh, legislation to extend the time frame for which U.S. businesses have to use their Paycheck Protection Program loans, forgivable loans. Originally, it was eight weeks. It's been uh, the extended to three times that duration, 24 weeks. According to um, the uh, data on the program, 4.4 million forgivable loans valued at a total of $510 billion have been distributed by the federal government total of about $650 billion had been provided by Congress for the loan program. So there is still some money available for those who haven't availed themselves and still might, particularly in states that are uh, slow to reopen, you know, like um, the big blue states, like the one I live in called Illinois. But uh, certainly we're not alone in the land of Lincoln. For more on the topic of what else can be done to uh, get the U.S. recovery as close to V-shaped as possible, we're pleased to be joined by Daniel Oliver, chairman of the Board of Education and Research Institute, senior director of the White House Writers Group in Washington, D.C. He served as chairman of the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, under President Reagan, and former chairman of the Board of National Review as well. Daniel Oliver, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Um, I want to uh, talk about your uh, five proposals to uh, make America even greater than uh, she was previously. I'm going to start with number one in order, and I think number one in controversy among conservatives, and that is to adopt the position of uh, some on the left, forgive student loans. You know what the pushback is going to be. Uh, Some people's loans have to be paid back in full and other people's loans should be forgiven in these times. Well, first of all, it's a two part program. It's not just forgiving loans. It's forgiving loans and defunding the institutions. They get billions of dollars every year, and they don't do anything for it. Students learn nothing. We know that. We've tested them. Uh, going to college, for most people, is a complete scam. They waste two or four years of their lives, and they wind up thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in debt. And so, basically, it can be seen as a scam operation, and my proposal has two parts. One is forgiving the loans, because I think the the kids got hornswoggled. They're now not kids, they're young adults. 
But the first part is to forgive the loans. But the second part is to stop funding the institutions. And if you do that, you pay for the loan forgiveness in about eight or nine or 10 years, depending upon how you structure it. So it's a two-part operation. It's not just forgiving loans. It's also defunding the organizations, the institutions that have extracted this money from the kids. Is there a, a middle way so that uh, colleges right-size their approach to spending as well, which is to say, for example, one of the things I've argued about for uh, the University of Illinois in my home state, because it charges the second highest tuition in the Big Ten in state, is here's here would be my state government proposal to Illinois, University of Illinois. Either you bring your tuition down to the median tuition level in the Big Ten conference, or we're going to reduce the state subsidy that you get per pupil to in half because it's twice what the national average is. So do some, my point is they do some sort of calibration between the subsidy you get through the student loan programs or through state and federal subsidies and have it be on a sliding scale with your tuition. Well, you can obviously structure it in a million different ways, depending on how you rearrange the numbers. Uh, my basic point um, and, you know, column and making a basic point, you can only sort of limb what you have in mind yes. is to forgive loans and to cut funding. Now, how you do that, whether you forgive 100% of the loans or 98% or 73.7% is obviously up for grabs, whether you forgive all loans or forgive only loans for people making less than some magic number is obviously is up for negotiation. But the point is that most of these institutions are hardcore left institutions brainwashing kids to be anti-American. And if they want to do that, that's fine. But there's no reason why they should do it on the taxpayer dollar. And if they if they want to get money from the folks in Illinois, that's a separate question. I was talking about the feds. I don't see why the people of, of Mississippi or of Kentucky or Minnesota should pay for the college people of Illinois. If they want to subsidize their folks, that's fine. But now, don't make the rest of us subsidize those folks. Uh, sticking in the same topic area, one of your other proposals is in the in, in, to advance school choice. And you talk about uh, a tax credit equal to the cost per student of government education. Would this be essentially to um, voucherize the Department of Education to make it sort of a pass through for these tax credit scholarships? Yes. I mean, again, you can look at a number of ways and apply a number of words on it. But basically, it's giving parents choice. The problem with education now, and we've heard a lot about education in the last sort of week and a half, is that education run by the teachers' unions, which are wholly owned subsidiaries of the Democratic Party, or the other way around, yeah. um, teach nothing. They are terrible places to send your children to, and they learn nothing. And we ought to enable parents who care about their children to send their children to better schools. And the way you do that is you give them a voucher, a dollar, you give them a chit, call it what you like, and they can go and pick the school instead of being forced to go to the government-run school, which is run by government and their teachers' union lackeys, or vice versa, as I say. So the point is to free the parents from government. Speaking of the government, uh, one of your other proposals, and I'm glad this makes the top five, is to uh, address government salaries and to calibrate them to, I would say, you know, the, the way it's presented is cut government salaries. But what I really uh, read you saying is calibrate them to something approximating what their private sector counterparts make for doing similar work. Yes, and that is certainly true. But also something that rubs a lot of people the wrong way, and it should, is when there's a government shutdown and, the, and they don't work for a week and a half, they still get paid. Yeah. But, you know, when people get laid off because of the coronavirus, they don't get paid. I and mean, maybe they do in special circumstances, but these the federal workers 
they get their salaries are higher than comparable workers in the public sector, and they probably get better pensions. And I just don't see any reason why why the the taxpayers, people who pay put up the money should have to pay people at a higher rate than they're getting paid. That doesn't make any sense. Well, nothing uh, smacks of ruling class more than noting that, uh, you know, Northern Virginia is home to some of the ritziest zip codes in the country. I mean, you basically exactly. have, right, exactly. this this class of people, the uh, technocrats as well as the politicians, that make exponentially more than the people they were elected and or appointed exactly. to serve. And that's, uh, that's, a, that's real a real problem. That's the point. And so basically you're democratizing, if you like it, the way things run, but there's no reason why the federal workforce should be paid more than the people who pay their salaries. And uh, even though we got a good, uh, relatively speaking, a jobs report today, a surprising one where we actually gained a couple and a half million jobs back rather than the expected yeah. losing millions more in May, we still have a long way to go and tax policy will be important in with respect to the recovery and it's the shape that it takes. Uh, the president and uh, Larry Kudlow, his economic advisors, have talked about perhaps a payroll tax holiday. You suggest uh, something that's a little bit more structural and a little bit more permanent to engender economic growth. Yes, I mean all of those things work. Some should be, some could be temporary, some could be permanent. Um, the point of all of my proposals, I think, if you look at them as a group, is that they lower the level of government involvement and they hand the authority and the money back to the citizens and let them um, deal with their problems and deal with their lives with their own money instead of having it go to Washington, uh, spend a very expensive night or a year there, and then go back to the people. So the idea is to reduce the level of government, um, which will make everything work better. I mean, uh, how um, sanguine are you on the prospects of that? It was something that uh, Ronald Reagan regretted that who you, know, you served under regretted he was unable to do in terms of the spend. And as long as government uh, continues to hand out uh, this level of goodies, it's going to continue to expand in all sorts of grotesque ways, isn't it? Government, government does always seem to expand. And that's a continuing problem we have. The more people talk about an alternative the more leaders talk about an alternative, the more the voters may understand that there is, in fact, an alternative way of doing business. And uh, if you talk about it enough and convincingly enough, then maybe you can persuade the people. I mean, certainly the distribution of um, the recovery and uh, how people and people's mobility, where they're moving to, it'll be maybe that would be instructive as well. Something to be scaled to the federal level when you see states with smaller governments, even big states like Texas and Florida, smaller governments, smaller governmental footprints doing better economically and in every other way. Maybe that's something that starts to persuade people that that is the way. Well, Well, we see people voting with their feet. They leave places like New York, California in droves and go to lower tax cities. And then, of course, the New Yorks and the Californians complain and they want federal bailouts, which is to say they want to reach the money in the pockets of the people who fled their states. Because if you flee to if you flee New York and and, uh, New Jersey and go to a lower tax state, but then the feds tax you so that the feds can send money to New York and New Jersey, what have you gained? Right. Um, yes. I think the point is that people vote with their feet, and they shouldn't have to support the states they left. They, those states have bad policies. Let them wallow in them. He is Daniel Oliver, chairman of the Board of Education and Research Institute and senior director of the White House Writers Group in D.C. He served as chairman of the FTC under Reagan and former chairman of the Board of National Review as well. Daniel Oliver, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. You bet. I got Seat 
sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Galissa Finley had a good piece in the Wall Street Journal about this uh, study published in the Lancet, which is, uh, I guess, otherwise a respected medical journal in the UK, that um, found that uh, hydroxychloroquine is harmful. And this was, of course, trumpeted by the Washington Post and the D.C. press corps because since Trump had trumpeted it, the press corps had to push back as hard as they can to say, no, 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 it's dangerous, it's wrong, he's wrong because he's always wrong and he's dangerous. After the study was published suggesting that hydroxychloroquine is harmful, in an open letter to the Lancet's editors and the study's authors, some 120 doctors, statisticians, and epidemiologists write that the headlines about the study have caused considerable concern to participants and patients enrolled in randomized controlled trials evaluating the drugs. Oh, remember them? So they raise methodological as well as data integrity concerns. They wanted to have these studies authors show their work, and the Lancet was not forthcoming. There was also, when it was forthcoming, an admission by the uh, data outfit that they used, a Chicago company called Surgisphere, that they had made mistakes. They noted, for instance, that a hospital in Asia was lumped in with Australian death totals. The study said the average reported dose of hydroxychloroquine was 100 milligrams higher than the FDA guidelines. So, as Finley wrote, the data, two possibilities from that, either the data is inaccurate or doctors were treating patients with dangerously high doses, which would skew the the results and thus perhaps um, provide important context to the study in terms of its uh, importance for guidance. There's so much swirling around, people won't want to enter those trials, said David Smith, an infectious disease specialist at the University of California, San Diego, in which case it will be an open question that won't get answered, right? I mean, HCQ, uh, hydroxychloroquine, has been approved for emergency use, and so it's a patient-doctor decision, but there are clinical trials ongoing to see if it would be an effective antiviral, and, and you know, the results have been decidedly mixed, so as we've said on this show, Many a time, uh, oh, okay, so emergency use, if the FDA thinks emergency use and for COVID-19, then let's see what the trials produce. It's just like uh, the position we took with remdesivir and uh, anything else. But politics seems to have uh, insinuated itself into this area of science, too, sadly. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Miriam Mendelson. She's a Ph.D. social science researcher and licensed clinical mental health counselor. Dr. Mendelson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Dan. You have uh, intervened in this discussion as well, in part because you want to have New York Governor Andrew Cuomo rescind his ban on hydroxychloroquine in the state of New York. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the basis for that. You know, I come at this from a couple of different perspectives. Actually, uh, I'd say three. First of all, as a mental health counselor, so my background is in research and policy analysis. That's my PhD background. I've studied international policy, policy analysis in general. I also hold a license as a clinical mental health counselor in the state of New York. And currently, my gig, if you would put it that way, is I work as a counselor with vulnerable communities in New York City. And for that reason, I have been in really close contact. I would call it heart-to-heart contact 
with people in vulnerable communities, poor communities, largely black and brown communities. And I've spoken to people sometimes daily who have lost multiple people in their family, okay? People who have suffered devastating losses. And on the level of colleagues, I had one woman who worked in corrections. She lost 10 of her colleagues, two of whom were partners. So the losses that I have seen really up close and personal have been absolutely devastating. So that's from one perspective. From another perspective, I have an immediate relative who works as a, uh, actually as a hospital chaplain in one of the main hospitals in New York City and works with the families of the bereaved. And lastly, I am personally acquainted with a physician who has treated people who were sick with coronavirus in New York and has unfortunately had to do it almost in secrecy for the simple reason, and saved lives, by the way, all ages, mildly ill, severely ill, and has had to do so in secrecy for the simple reason that there is still an executive order in effect, was put in place on the 23rd of March by Andrew Cuomo, that bans pharmacies from filling hydroxychloroquine prescriptions written by doctors if they are for coronavirus patients which is, it's mind boggling. So you can see the cognitive dissonance when I'm talking daily to people that are suffering these devastating losses. And I know that there is a drug that when used particularly early on, definitely with zinc, because hydroxychloroquine potentiates zinc, that's the whole point of it, it makes pathways for zinc to go through the cell membranes and stop the virus from replicating. So the hero there is really the zinc, the hydroxy just enables it, facilitates it. I know that there's this drug out there that has been shown to be helpful in many cases. You know, we can debate the statistics, how many, whatever. It has been shown to be helpful. And I know that these poor people in vulnerable communities will never see this drug unless if they're in a hospital, if they're at death's door, God forbid, when it's already not effective and without the zinc. You weren't surprised uh, <clears throat> when it turned out uh, that... Uh according to his doctors, uh, Trump's uh, usage of a hydroxychloroquine regimen did not have any deleterious impact on his health, as was uh, warned would happen by many members of the press corps when it when he announced that he had been on such a regimen. Trump is N equals one. Okay, that is a sample size of one. Right. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who take hydroxychloroquine every day for chronic conditions like arthritis and lupus. We have a huge data set of people who are not uh, uh, suffering deleterious effects, who are not dying in bunches. President Trump was, was one single high profile case. But logically speaking, again, I come at this as a researcher. I look at data. I look at logic. There are thousands and thousands of people who take it every day. L let me just tell you something. The reason why I'm getting on the show with you today is very simple. For me, it's not about politics at this point. I'm, if, I could, if I didn't have to counsel people every day and I could simply sit with a sign in Albany in front of the State House every time Cuomo walks in saying, please lift the ban. There is no issue with shortages at this point. We've gotten, what is it, uh, 26, we've, we just gave uh, 
two million, was it two million doses to Brazil? We donated. Mm -hmm. Okay. We've gotten something like 26 million cases, uh, doses from India. The dose for coronavirus is two pills a day for five days. That is 10 pills. Okay. There is no shortage issue here. My purpose here is simply to shed some light on the existence of the executive order. There are, there are, this exists in other states, but in New York, where I am, number one, the death toll is the highest, and number two, the restriction is also the strictest. When we come back with Miriam Mendelssohn, I want to uh, get her take on how much politics may have had to do with the studies done on hydroxychloroquine and the Governor Cuomo decision to ban it in New York State. More with Miriam Mendelssohn when we return. You gotta fight! You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. We're back with Miriam Mendelssohn, and I'd be happy not to talk about politics while discussing science, but unfortunately it doesn't seem like that's possible these days. And thus the need for these authors to retract their study. At least that's one possible explanation. But not only was the study on hydroxychloroquine pulled, the New England Journal of Medicine also pulled an article by the same authors of the hydroxychloroquine study on heart disease and COVID-19. These are uh, medical doctors from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. I wonder, as a researcher yourself, is it possible that they were just that sloppy then unwilling to sort of initially cop to their sloppiness? Or do you think that there was politics afoot? Do you have any insight into how this could come about, especially to be published in the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet? You know, where's the peer review? Where's the editorial review? Politics is always a part of a picture. Whenever you talk about government policy, whenever you talk about people's reactions to new ideas, absolutely. People and where they stand politically or where they stand ideologically is also going to have absolutely an effect. In terms of what people said, for example, the executive order by Andrew Cuomo, no pharmacist shall shall dispense hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine except when written as prescribed for an FDA-approved indication, i.e. arthritis or lupus, malaria, or as prescribed as part of a clinical trial uh, related to COVID-19, which means everybody outside of that trial is condemned. The original justification was uh, because of shortages. So my, what is, it's not a request, almost pleading to Andrew Cuomo is, this is a moment where you can show leadership. There is no issue of shortages. The dosage for coronavirus is tiny. It's 10 pills. When given with zinc, it's been shown to be effective. A Yale epidemiologist, Dr. Harvey Risch, mm-hmm. just came out saying that hydroxychloroquine with zinc in early stages of illness is effective. The American Association of Physicians and Surgeons reviewed 2,333 cases and had 2,137, that's about 91%, improved on hydroxychloroquine. I'm hoping that zinc was also in there. So the data, the positive data is in. The shortages are no longer an issue, whatever the reason why that was done in the beginning, okay? I'm here 
because I want lives to be saved. As, as a licensed uh, clinical mental health counselor as well, mm-hmm. the uh, mental health impacts of, of uh, the policies, particularly the lockdown, there were a, a group of doctors in Northern California who said the other week that they have seen more suicides in the last month than they normally see in a year. And I wonder yes. what your experience has been in terms of the uh, the per- perhaps the heightened incidence of mental health crises, patients with mental health crises that you're treating. Let me just say like this, the people that I speak to, and like I say, my particular work, I work for a government agent. I'm not here to like blow the whistle on people, but mm-hmm. I counsel people every day from vulnerable communities. I'm going to tell you, this is going to sound ironic. Okay. It's a little bit of a dark statement. They don't have the luxury of committing suicide, these people. These are people who have multiple family members dying, and they are the one holding the family together. They have young children. They themselves are sick. So, yes, I definitely think that the lockdown has put tremendous pressure on people, and I'm sure it's uh, increased suicides or suicidal thinking, and that's tragic. The people I speak to, they're simply dealing with death all the time. And like I said, one woman, 10 of her colleagues died, two of whom were partners that she worked with. I'll tell you just one story. A woman, she spoke about her aunt, who, now first it was her her great uncle, or her uncle, I forgot which one, went into the hospital, was on a respirator. Again, no chance to get a hold of these drugs that could have saved his life. In a hospital, on a respirator, was told that the respirator was needed for younger, healthier patients, was taken off the respirator, and he died. Then her aunt heard the story about the, the uncle. They, they, they weren't married. It was uh, two related people. And said, heck no, I'm not going into the hospital. She got coronavirus, stayed out of the hospital. Again, no access to these medications, and she died. And that's a typical story in the sense of multiple family members. So, yes, I get that. Suicide and mental health issues are an increasing problem because of expanded lockdowns and people, you know, knowing family members, et cetera, whatever. The people I know, they're dealing with death directly. It's not an issue of suicide. It's an issue of desperately holding families together that have suffered multiple losses, which is why I'm speaking out in any way I can and just saying, Cuomo, the time for leadership is here. Please lift the ban. Please wow. rescind the executive order. Well, I hope he listens. She is Miriam Mendelson, PhD, social science researcher, licensed clinical mental health counselor. Miriam Mendelson, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. You say you got a real solution. Well, you know, we don't love to see the plan. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Kirsten Powers, formerly a Fox News contributor, now over at CNN. And boy, is she. If this uh, op-ed in USA Today is any indication. America's overdue reckoning with white supremacy. We have allowed evil to flourish. Mm-hmm. I'll start, Powers writes. I repent for my lack of action. I repent for my lack of urgency. I repent for not listening more. I repent for lacking humility. If the religious language of repentance alienates you, then just try saying I'm sorry. 
I urge all white people to really search their conscience and take responsibility for how they have benefited from not challenging white supremacy because we have all benefited. You think the term white supremacy goes too far? Powers asks rhetorically. I get it because I used to think the same thing, but it's actually an accurate descriptive term for the systems, the systems of the United States. Against all historical pretensions to the contrary, this country treats whiteness, particularly white maleness, as the supreme value. It works to denigrate and erase any culture not white. It centers the feelings, cultural practices, and experiences of white people above that of anyone who isn't. This, quite simply, is white supremacy. There are worse things in life than being accused of racism. Being asphyxiated by a police officer's knee on your neck is much worse. Yeah, no, that is worse than being called a racist. Is it worse than uh, being gunned down by a fellow member of your community? Systems. White supremacy is a descriptive term for the systems of the United States, Powers argued. There's a uh, video from six years ago, November of 2014, that's uh, gone viral a second time, much more so this time. Think how much has changed in six years. Former Milwaukee Police Chief Ed Flynn responding to a reporter's question really criticism of his looking at his phone during a community meeting after an officer involved shooting. The uh, officer had been fired and he was appealing his termination. He was involved in the shooting of a civilian during the board meeting or the, the community gathering. Flynn was, you know, looking at messages on his phone and members, some members of the audience took that to be a sign of disrespect. He wasn't interested in listening to what they had to say about the shooting and about their relationship with the Milwaukee Police Department. Here's what uh, Ed Flynn had to say to the reporter who raised that issue in that way. Well, I was on my phone, and yes, that's true. I was following developments with a five-year-old little girl sitting on her dad's lap who just got shot in the head by a drive-by shooting. And if some of the people here gave a good God about the victimization of people in this community by crime, I take some of their invective more seriously. The greatest racial disparity in the city of Milwaukee is getting shot and killed. Hello. 80% of my homicide victims every year are African-American. 80% of our aggravated assault victims are African-American. 80% of our shooting victims who survived their shooting are African-American. Now, they know all about the last three people that have been killed by the Milwaukee Police Department over the course of the last several years. There's not one of them can name last, one of the last three homicide victims we've had in this city. Now, there's room for everybody to participate in fixing this police department, and I'm not pretending we're without sin. But this community's at risk, all right. And it's not because men and women in blue risk their lives protecting it. It's at risk because we have large numbers of high-capacity, quality firearms in the hands of remorseless criminals who don't care who they shoot. Now, I'm leaving here to go to that scene. And I take it personally, okay? We're going up there, and there's a bunch of cops processing a scene of a dead kid. And they're the ones that are going to be out there patrolling and stopping sus suspects that may have guns under the front seat. They're the ones that are going to take the risks of their lives to try to clean this thing up. All right? We're responsible for the things we get wrong and we take action. We've arrested cops, we've fired cops, and so on. But the fact is that the people out here, some of them, who had the most to say are absolutely MIA when it comes to the truth threats facing this community. And it gets a little tiresome. And we start getting yelled at for reading the updates of the kid that gets shot. Yeah, you take it personal, okay? Now, no offense, but I'm going up there now. Ed Flynn retired in 2018 from the Milwaukee Police Department. Fortunately, there's very few police chiefs uh, around the country, at least that we've heard from, that would uh, stand and deliver like Flynn did in that moment in 2014. 
and to the term that Kristen, Kirsten Powers used in her op-ed, systems, systems of white supremacy. Okay. Made this uh, point uh, yesterday, I think, in our conversation with uh, Victor Davis Hanson. But I'll make it again. Let's go through that. Systems. So what are the systems that that punctuate and accentuate and organize our lives in America? Think of the institutions, K through 12 education, higher education, arts and entertainment, media, government, corporate America. Those half a dozen institutions covers a lot of ground and, and houses of worship. Those seven institutions covers a lot of ground, right? But, uh, you could categorize most of your life into relation with one of those institutions, couldn't you? So if it's systemic, you have to ask who's in charge of the systems, don't you? So who is? Who's in charge of those seven systems I just met, the seven institutions that I just mentioned? It's white men and white women and men and women of every race and mainly men and women of every race who are identitarian leftists, is it, isn't it? Including in communities of faith, as we've seen from Wilton Gregory this week in Washington, D.C., for example. So, yeah, so if there's systemic white supremacy that is uh, oppressing people of color in this country, particularly black Americans, then it is coming at the hands of those who are in charge of the systems. It logically follows that has to be the case. How could the powerless impose their will? This is, in point of fact, the, the very argument that is made by Darling Glanton and identitarians. Blacks cannot be racist because they have no power. Well, how can conservative Republicans like me be advancing white supremacy when uh, those who share my philosophical disposition aren't in charge of anything except, you know, a, a school here and there, a, a college here and there? But I mean, the those sectors I mentioned, all seven of them dominated by identitarian leftists. So I guess per Kirsten Powers, if you want to end the white supremacy she believes is flourishing, you have to end identitarian leftism. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, we're going to end uh, the program and the week with another offering from Dan Prof Show poet laureate R. A. Droit on Attorney General Bill Barr. But before we do. Uh, some commentary from Bill Barr at uh, yesterday's press conference where he talked about uh, the various uh, groups of people on the streets and how Department of Justice views each one of those groups. It was a very uh, thoughtful, precise 
explanation. And uh, golly, if only we had more clear thinkers and communicators in positions of authority like Attorney General Barr, we could have much more sensible conversations and sensibly much more sensible public policies. Uh, Bill Barr on uh, the notions of uh, equal protection and equal justice under the law. While the vast majority of police officers do their job bravely and righteously, it is undeniable that many African Americans lacked confidence in our American criminal justice system. This must change. Our Constitution mandates equal protection of the laws and nothing less is acceptable. As the nation's leading federal law enforcement agency, the Department of Justice will do its part. I believe that police chiefs and law enforcement officials and leaders around the country are committed to ensuring that racism plays no part in law enforcement and that everyone receives equal protection of the laws. And it was important that he said that because even if you don't want it to be true, even if you may want to make the argument that it isn't true, that it shouldn't be true, that people, uh, that black Americans are, are fearful of, anxious of the police, it is. So you have to deal with what is the reality. And you have to address the reality and people's perceptions about uh, police. And so it was important, I thought, what Bill Barr had to say. And uh, an acknowledgement that we have a, a ways to go. We, we want to make sure that people believe it because they see it. They see that there will be equal protection and equal justice under the law. And that brings us to R.A. Droit's offering on Bill Barr. The next AG picked by the president was Gravitas Full Embodiment. Bill Barr can fell an oak tree with his glare and turn a guilty conscience to despair. His bear-like bearing and his spectacles make Judgment Day seem unavoidable. With forward movement like a Sherman tank, he dogs the guilty unconcerned with rank. While back behind the bars, like kids at zoos, the media would claim Barr's just Trump's stooge. The press forgot, of course, that Eric Holder who looks like Freddie Prince, but slightly older, and with a shorter porn stash while AG had said, Obama's wingman, I will be. Back then, Attorney General, Attorneys General had the role of digging POTUS out of any hole. All right. Very good, R.A. Droit, as always. Thank you for that. Nice to end the week with some verse and a little bit of levity. And we appreciate you joining us all week. Please tune in again to the Dan Prof Show on Monday. Have a great and safe weekend. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.